Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Welcome to Escaping Society Season 9, Episode, I think, 97, Martian Anthropology Quest. Isn't 9 the German word for no? Maybe yeah. that's God trying to tell us something. <laughs> I can't believe we're still doing podcasts. I mean, let's be real. we got nothing else to do. Okay, that's true. <laughs> um, we were just coming off of our in between season breaks, uh, break, and we're up here on the Blue Ridge Parkway because it's hot down below. And uh, <laughs> tell me more. <laughs> it's steamy and hot, baby. All right, that's enough. Okay, uh, so let's see what have we been doing up here? Listening to a lot of other people's podcasts. Yeah, yeah, we've been hearing some really good podcasts and uh, terrifying podcast yeah yeah and oh gumby um was he was reading this book called primates of park avenue by wednesday martin yep and he found this book in a little free library i think in boone right yeah so the only since we don't have access to a library up here we just you know got to read what we find in a little free library so i just do my best to pick out one and i guess where you're going with that is uh this wednesday martin she's uh You know, I've got a lot of criticism about her kind of being a, you know, rich white lady, you know, doing the uptown Manhattan thing. But um, she uh, decided to approach her experience in, do you remember, like, I don't know the the geography of Manhattan. It's like there's there's she was moving on up to the east side. Let's just put it that way. She was already rich in a rich part of New York City, and her and her husband decided to move to an even more posh area. So and so she felt like you know by her standards she was kind of the country girl compared to them. (laughs) So she decided to approach it in kind of like an anthropologist way. And I got to say I, I enjoyed the book for the most part. Some of the things like. I kind of rolled my eyes because she's making fun of this society that she's also really trying to, like, fit into. So, I don't know. Part of it rang like, like I said, I just rolled my eyes. But for the most part, it was neat uh, seeing someone try to approach uh, the upper crust of Manhattan from an anthropologist's perspective. So, in her way, she was sort of being like a Martian anthropologist. And it kind of got me thinking about a lot of the stupid things that we do in our culture. And at first, I thought this episode might just simply focus on some of the, some of the things I consider to be pretty stupid. Oh, but wait a minute. You were kind of checking in about our time off. I got a couple of things I wanted to... Well, I, I, I will get back to that. Let me okay. just finish this thought. So I was thinking about like what this episode might be, and it's, I think, I hope, going to evolve into more than just a... 
a general like fuck you to everybody. So um, <laughs> everything I say is a general fuck you to everybody. Yeah. But this might be a little bit more informative. So, yeah, I almost set the van on fire a couple weeks ago. Oh, like, yeah, I forgot about that. Like, really? Um, well, let's back up a little bit. We did the Mountains to the Sea Trail beginning on my birthday, which was back in late June. And that was not in the mountains. That was further east in North Carolina. And we experienced one of the worst, for me, the worst year of ticks, season yeah. of ticks. Often we come up here, part of the reason we come into the mountains is to escape the ticks, along with the heat and all that other unpleasant crap. But not this year. This has been by far the tickiest season. Like Teresa said, she's describing uh, the mountains to sea trail as we're heading up to the mountains. But maybe jumping ahead in your story a little bit, even the mountains have been swarming with ticks. Mm-hmm. Really unusual. And another really unusual thing is the lack of mosquitoes. I mean, usually we're being attacked by them. We have to use our screens almost every night. And uh, it's just a little rare mosquito, like on an occasional night, that'll come in now. So it's strange how that works. I don't know how much to think that's like uh, human-caused or how much that's just (laughs) natural cycles within cycles. But it is interesting how often I see something really spike on a given year. And then something else, it's like it takes turns. In other words, it's rare that I see three or four hazards at the same time Mm -hmm. really spike on a given year. Unless it's human-caused, and then it all shit breaks loose. And that's what I mean. I don't know where the line is. Like, are we causing the ticks? Is this just part of the tick cycle? Like, I don't know. And I'm still I'm still wondering about this um, supposed to be this banner year for cicadas, and I've heard maybe two. Oh, yeah. Big flop. So I'm not sure what happened there. But so getting back to the story about how I almost burned down our vehicle and our home, our dog, Sherlock, was covered in ticks after our, what was it, five nights out? Yep. Um, on the backpacking mountains to the sea trail. So we would just, for weeks afterwards, find ticks on him. And some of them would get to the size of grapes, which is disgusting. And um, occasionally, like, I have this pee jar, like a jar that I pee in if I uh, can't go outside and pee. It's kind of funny, but hey, it works. Um, And we would fill the jar, I mean, like, there would be 10, 12, maybe even more ticks in there to just deal with whenever we woke up the next morning because that would be what would crawl on us at night as well as on the dock. So we get to one of our favorite towns to hang out in for a while, Sparta in mm-hmm. North Carolina, and um, Sherlock has this big grape-sized tick on him. So I decide, because Gumby's done it before, I decide to use a uh, a lighter. Oh, because Gumby's done it. Yeah. Well, I would like I would squash the damn things with a rock, and you were like, "That's really a horrible way to die." And I was like, "Okay, so I'll just set it on fire." I mean, would you rather be burned alive or squashed with a rock? I don't know. Well, now that I said it out loud, I don't either. But yeah, so I used this lighter, and and it was kind of a broken lighter that we had found on the side of the road. So it was kind of like, uh, like the spring was messed up and like the, the casing on the top of it, like the metal casing was gone. So I should have known better, but I didn't. So I, I took this tick on the curb of the sidewalk and I burnt it and it was gross. And I went to go plug in some of our electronics at this park we were at because they had outlets there. 
And when I'm coming back to the van, I'm like, wow, it's really smelling like something's burning. And then I see about, oh, I don't know, an eight inch flame coming out of the little like holder where we keep all of the cigarette lighters that we find, like a handful of cigarette lighters. And one of them has a sustained flame coming out of it, the one I had just used to kill the tick. It was panic time. And I was standing next to an entire milk crate full of bottles of water. Couldn't think to use the bottles of water. I just screamed, help, help. And Gumby comes running over and I'm like, I, I'm trying to get this lighter, but I'm scared to reach in. But it's like about to cause a chain reaction that's going to light all the other cigarette lighters. You weren't that coherent. You were no. like, the van's on fire. The van's on fire. And so Gumby burns his hand getting the the lighter that's like malfunctioning out and saves our van. So that happened. So yeah, that was pretty scary. And uh, we only have a little bit of damage to that area where we keep the lighters. Um, through, obviously threw that one out. And from now on, any lighters that are broken, we're not really going to use. And now we got a nice new ugly van scar. But the van didn't burn down, so I consider that a good day. Yes. Anything else that you want to share of our uh, in-between times? I mean, yeah, there was like, it's been a month and a half, so there's a lot I could get into. But as you pointed out, you know, we might do episodes this season that kind of like focus on uh, stuff that gets into that stuff we want to share. But one thing you just brought up that reminded me of that I thought was pretty funny is, you know, I've always thought these electric cars are kind of pretentious. You know, like (laughs) that that South Park episode of, uh, you know, they called it what a, a Pius, Pius. Oh, yeah. And like, you know, the like the smug instead of the smog is moving over like it's becoming a big problem because all these people just are so uh, damn pleased with themselves. Like, oh, I see you've got an electric car. Good for you. Thanks. <laughs> and they're so smug. So that's kind of the way I think of electric vehicles. You know, it's like, man, you know, you guys think you're better than the people driving gas powered vehicles, but you're not looking into like what goes into an electric car. It's just a facade. But now I don't know what's changed. I don't know why I just started noticing this. If it's a new thing, (laughs) new models come with a new feature. Oh my God. But when these things start, like one thing I actually admired about them is how quiet they are. I thought that was kind of cool. But now there's this sound, and I've heard it like at least three times this summer. Oh, yeah. And my uncle has a a fairly new Prius, and it does the same thing. You ever watch like a movie where like a miracle has happened, and like the golden light breaks through the clouds, and there's that like, damn, if electric cars don't do that sound now. (laughs) It's like, see, they're even more pretentious. They're powered by a choir of angels. I mean, there's nothing like seeing some kind, like a middle-class liberal driving past in their electric car going, (laughs) So, yeah. um, Segue. (laughs) Martian anthropologist. What is that? And where did that term come from? I think we first heard it in a book by Daniel Quinn. Yeah, I think the Daniel Quinn book I first heard it in was uh, If They Give You Line Paper Right Sideways. But he definitely uses this concept in all of his books because he's describing how he comes by these ideas. He's uh, being interviewed by this woman, Elaine, 
in the book. And uh, she's asking him, how do you th- how do you come to this stuff? How do you even think of this stuff? You know, which if you've ever, ever read Daniel Quinn, you probably have the same thought, like, how the hell did he figure this stuff out? How <laughs> how do you see things this way? And uh, he describes it as being a Martian anthropologist. And um, I'm not sure if he coined the term. Do you know? I don't think he did. Yeah. So, but he's using the term. That's where I first encountered it. And basically he's saying, try to get outside of the box. There's so many things within our culture that we just take for granted because we're embedded in this culture. We're raised by this culture. We are saturated with this culture. But as much as you can, practice looking at things as if you were from another planet. Take nothing for granted. Question things, you know, like come at it fresh. Um, In Ishmael, one of the first parts of that that I remember him, even though I don't think he used the term Martian anthropologist, but that he really encouraged the uh, character. Do you remember the character's name in, in Ishmael? The man that was like coming to him to learn? I can't remember. No, I can't remember either. But he asked him, what is the creation myth of your culture? And so the guy's like, well, do you mean like if you're going to church, like what do you think? He's like, no, no, no. I mean something so pervasive that I could talk to anybody in your culture basically. And um, to the best of your knowledge, the, the cutting edge of what your culture thinks you know, how would you describe how you became you, how things got started? And um, basically he was – being a Martian anthropologist. He was stepping outside of our culture and trying to encourage this guy to look in at our culture as if you didn't believe everything the culture had taught you. What if you questioned it? And um, we're not going to you know, get into all the details of that. That was a whole important section of the book. But basically, you know, what the guy figures out with Ishmael's help is that um, the creation myth of our culture goes something like, a lot of unimportant stuff happened to pave the way for us to be here. <laughs> you know, there's sort of an undercurrent of like, it was all like, we are the epitome. We're what it's about. And once you see that, it's you, you watch TV shows, like I always think of Star Trek, for instance. But it's always like what we're doing is the important stuff on the Earth. The aliens come here to either conquer us or to talk to us You know, just in a hundred different ways, no matter whether you're an atheist, a Christian, um, any of the many beliefs that we think are so diversified in our culture, there's this underlying bedrock of it was all about us. And so Ishmael cleverly asks in that book, like, well, what do you think the creation myth of a jellyfish might be if they could articulate it? (laughs) Do you think they believe the world was created just so people could come and that was the top of the evolutionary chain? Or might they tell it differently? So... And as we were kind of building this episode, we we often have discussions about the topics before we do our research or before we brainstorm. And Gumby brought up a really good question, a really good point, because as I said, I was going to try to just have an episode complaining about things in our culture that don't make sense. And he's like, well, if you're a Martian anthropologist, like what type of planet or society are you coming from? Because you're imagining that it's from, um, I guess what some people would consider like the, I don't know, like the noble savage culture or like some culture that maybe has a higher value for the environment or for the health of the planet 
than we do, but that might not be the case. So we had this huge discussion about how we are will affect who our Martian anthropologist is. Yeah, that's something Quinn doesn't bring up. He kind of leaves it open, and I get what he's getting at. But as you're crafting questions, you know, picture your Martian anthropologist. And I think what we tend to do when we hear that phrase is we picture a Martian anthropologist as being a more advanced version of wherever you think we should be headed. In other words, you don't picture a Martian anthropologist coming from a devastated planet, drowning in pollution, uh, decimated by war, you know, because his questions might be, if he came from that planet, how can I best take over this planet? (laughs) You know, so how you picture the Martian anthropologist will craft the questions. Maybe you, I think most of us will picture a Martian anthropologist because we assume there's certain things like he's uh, apparently can travel through space. So we imagine him coming from a taker culture. Someone coming from a taker culture is going to have much different questions. And if you're not familiar with uh, Ishmael or Daniel Quinn's work, a taker culture would be like what we call civilized as opposed to indigenous tribes. Um So that person might come and suppose you vote Democrat, you believe in green energy. You might imagine your anthropologist asks questions like, how come you have this wonderful technology that can use the sun's energy and wind and water? And how come you still cling to gas powered vehicles might be a question that the Martian anthropologist asks. If that's your agenda. If that's your agenda. To me, I would imagine I've always kind of uh, more and more I'm coming around to thinking that whatever we're calling civilization here is more likely a fluke. I would imagine if there's other life out there that is at all following a path similar to our one species amidst all these other species on the planet, um, they could quite possibly be from a lever culture. So in other words, they're, they might not even be interested in traveling to other worlds they're so invested in theirs. They, they're, it's about taking care of your people, uh, getting to know your world, um, the spiritual depths. So if someone was somehow plucked from our, our make-believe Mars and brought here, what kind of questions would they have? They might have questions to begin with, like, why do you f- create technologies that you then become reliant on? Why would you weaken your species? Why are you so unhappy that you feel like you need to invent something new? Hasn't the creator given you everything you need or how would you be here in the first place? A whole different line of questions. What was that uh, sentiment that uh, Indians from the continent of what would become known as North America were taken back over to Europe to be shown like in the courts of the kings and queens or whatever. And they were like, why are there so many poor people when there's so much excess? Yeah, I've read that that was one of the things that uh, astounded um, indigenous peoples, um, you know, back in, I don't know, years that much, but maybe like the 1600s, they'd bring indigenous people uh, to England to kind of feel like we're going to show off. We're going to show them how great we are. And, uh, you know, a lot of times the indigenous people were impressed with parts of it. But one of the things that almost uniformly they could not wrap their minds around was class hierarchy. Um, That we, they would see poor people that didn't have enough to survive. And then people that had way, way too much coming from a culture that generosity was the highest ideal. How do you 
allow people to amass that much and how do they feel proud of that? We would feel so ashamed. We'd have the people in our village, you know, our extended family looking at us like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> what kind of sickness has possessed you? So, yeah, even though they're not from Mars, that's a really good example of, uh, you know, to kind of get outside of that mindset. Instead of thinking of the explorer coming from our culture to investigate another culture, what happens when someone either from Mars or from an indigenous culture sees us from the outside. I think it's kind of the same objective. Mm -hmm. And another thing that occurred to me in line with the Martian anthropologists, you know, instead of just wondering what the Martian anthropologists would wonder about us, but looking, reversing the lens, and let's look at the Martian anthropologists, it's kind of a funny assumption to assume the Martian anthropologists would right away come here to study us. Yeah. Again, like we're the most important thing happening. <laughs> Maybe the Martian anthropologists would see us as parasites on trees. They might come here and like, oh, well, trees are definitely, look how old they grow to be. Look how they're, they're, they're giant. They tower over everything else. Everything depends on them. Um, there's kind of a curious parasitic creature that is causing a lot of harm um, to the planet and to the trees and uh, that has this delusion of self-importance that doesn't seem to be shared by any other creature on the planet. So we'll make a little side note about this creature. But uh, really, the interesting part, the dominant species on the planet is the trees. They are completely content. They don't need um, philosophies that don't serve them, technologies that always backfire on them. This is definitely the most evolved creature on the planet. Yeah, not to mention if the trees live, then a lot of other things can live. But if humans continue the way they're doing, then a lot of things are going to die, including possibly humans. Mm -hmm. uh, why... So why is kind of reflecting upon this episode, like why even talk about Martian anthropologists in an Escaping Society podcast? And I felt to me like this is something that is really going to help if you start to question, like, why would you be escaping society? And isn't it kind of the basis as to why people are wanting to escape society. Like if you start to question the society that you're a part of. Um, so that's why I kind of started to move into the direction of more of a uh, philosophical discussion. Yeah. And I can't imagine why someone would want to escape society when so much energy and uh, propaganda and dogma is fed to us to tell us that this is the best it's ever been. This is the best society in the world, uh, et cetera, et cetera. If you're going in the other direction, it seems to me you've already begun to be a Martian anthropologist. It seems like you must have started asking further reaching questions than, say, what they're trying to teach you to ask in the average school. There was this podcast that we um, often listen to called The Propaganda Report, and they did an interview with this guy who's known as Legal Man, um, and Legal Man said a few interesting things in his interview. Uh, I wrote down, examining hidden assumptions. What is someone's statement or your statement built upon? And what do we skip over to get to the assumptions? Now, what was he saying in context with what was like the question? Oh, well, I mean, I think their conversation was talking a lot about um, politics. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but this could like, <laughs> it was reminding me of the, the movie Idiocracy, which I would have loved to watch before this podcast that we're doing now, but, uh, just making assumptions that are kind of shortcuts, but then those shortcuts are really doing us a disservice. Why do we do the things we do? Why are these, the words that we use, what do they mean? Uh, what does it all mean? What's it all about? Yeah. One thing that just jumped in my head when you brought up idiocracy is uh, what happens when we fail to ask these questions? Um, we're in a society right now that is failing to ask all the important questions. For instance, one that always occurs to me is there's a continuous debate of how to power our civilization, where this electricity should come from. Instead of asking the question, why do we suddenly need this electricity that has proven across the board Every technology that has given us electricity thus far has been dependent on an industrial society that is, as Ted Kaczynski says, uh, has been a disaster for the whole human race. Nobody's asking that question. A big part of what's happening right now is a failure to ask good questions. And so I love an idiocracy because that can be hard to see. We're in the middle of it again. Mm. It's hard to be the Martian anthropologist. But another way that we were encouraged to try to be a Martian anthropologist is movies that bring us into the future. Because we can see the future, the fictionalized future, from the outside as if we were a Martian anthropologist more easily. And they were wondering why this big famine was happening, why the food wasn't growing. <laughs> and of course, in Idiocracy, it was because they were using power drinks like Powerade, Gatorade, whatever, instead of water. And it seemed so funny to us because that's a question that we would ask. But they, through the series of generations of the dumbing down of America, whatever. And making those assumptions. They forgot to ask this question. It was invisible to them. So it's easy to watch that and treat it like a comedy and laugh. But we're in the same boat. There's things right now that are destroying us that are completely unnecessary. And we're no better off than these people pouring Powerade on our crops, wondering <laughs> like, oh, what can we do to fix this problem? At the same time, you're still causing it. So you're trying to invent this new thing that nobody seems to invent instead of just looking at the simple cause and like, oh, wait a minute. We didn't need that 100 years ago. I can uh, read books and see stories of people being happy, happier than we are, perhaps. So there's a simple solution right there, just like we watched that movie and we're like, quit spraying Gatorade on the fucking crops. <laughs> well, I had written down as an example, because I love talking about toilet and bathrooming activities, <laughs> like there are often conversations about the quality of our drinking water, uh, the amount of fresh water that is being uh, sent right into the oceans, and then we have a problem about how to desalinate it and all of this. But yet we continue to use fresh drinkable water to flush our shit down the toilet. And even if you're like, well, I'm not ready to have a compost toilet or anything like that, um, have you ever thought about maybe collecting the water that maybe is from a bath or from washing your dishes to flush down the toilet? I mean, I'm just saying these things not because I necessarily expect people to change, but just as a kind of a wake-up call. We're doing things right now that don't make any sense. So, Gumby, did you want to talk about... Oh, I know, kind of bringing this up in an awkward way, but uh, <laughs> you had some things written down about... Um, 
questioning like the the way that that's spelled and and maybe some teachers that helped you to um to form some of your questions well yeah I've, I've mentioned this in other episodes particularly i think the uh native literacy episodes where we're talking about tracking but uh Another another plug for Tom Brown Jr. and the Tracking Nature and Wilderness Survival School. Um, one of my favorite, he, he, aside from Daniel Quinn, has been one of my favorite teachers of the power of questioning. Um, I took a coyote class with him. I think it was in a coyote class this happened. And uh, these were classes that he would teach people who wanted to teach in a certain style that he called coyote teaching. Um, that... Coyote teachers are sort of uh, more like the indigenous type of teacher. Like, uh, as an example, you know, whenever I'm trying to help somebody picture what a coyote teacher looks like, Mr. Miyagi from Karate Kid. (laughs) I think he's one of the most best-known coyote teachers, you know. He's like, just getting you to wash his car and everything, and the whole time, invisible to you, you're learning karate. (laughs) And he allows you to fail. He, uh, He allows you to learn through the experience and only steps in lightly to try to gently guide it. Um... But he wrote on the board one day, question and research. Tom Brown did, not Mr. Miyagi. Tom Brown did, yeah. No, no, Mr. Miyagi. Oh. But then he laughed, you know, and we were like, wow, that was Mr. Miyagi. And then Tom Brown came in and we're like, oh, it's Tom Brown. (laughs) But he wrote on the board, question and quest in capital letters, question, and then research, search in capital letters. So we got question and research, but the emphasis is on the quest and the search and in part of, like, he wrote a long list of uh, attributes of a good coyote teacher, and one of them is make questioning your religion. And that sat with me over the years, you know, religion, your sacred belief, the depth of your bones, the wa- if you're a fish, it's the water you swim in. It's the story that you're embedded in, how you see the world. And um, indeed, my life experience so far has been that the more questions you ask, the more you cultivate these questions. And then question your questions. Never forget to question yourself. Why do you think that? Are you right? How are you in uh, acting in this world, etc.? It is a quest. It's just like, you know, the the fairy tales of the knight going off to conquer the dragon, of Alice jumping down that hole after the rabbit, you know? It's become a saying in our culture, like chasing, what do they call it? Like Going down a rabbit hole? Going down a rabbit hole, yeah. And it's just like that. Your questions lead to more questions and lead to more questions, never ending, going places you never wanted to go, that you really wish you hadn't gone sometimes, terrifying places, extremely insecure and fearful places, as well as places of bright luminosity, places that just like give you a perspective on things where people who fail to ask the questions around you seem completely lost, completely lost in the herd. And you feel like you get to come up for that breath because of those questions like, oh, wait a minute. I see this for what it is. But it is a quest. And uh, how do you feel about that, Teresa? I know that in our time together, I can't speak to the time before we met, but we've been questioning a lot of things together (laughs) through the podcast, through our research, through reading books. Um, How do you feel about the statement if I would say like it's a quest? Well, it is interesting that you bring that up because I was talking before about, you know, making assumptions or forgetting at least where these assumptions were born, where they came from. And I can recognize kind of the utility of taking those shortcuts, but I also recognize that 
it is a weakening and a dumbing down of our current, like the way that our brains are working. So as far as the idea of it being a quest, I don't necessarily question everything all the time because I feel like I would be exhausted. Oh, I don't think anybody does. That would be impossible. But I guess it does wake up centers in the brain. It does um, strengthen your ability to not just go along with the herd. And that is, in many ways, a quest. Going out on your own, or at least feeling like you're on your own a lot of the times. Oh, and I know we were uh, planning on talking more about Socrates, but uh, at the risk of jumping ahead a little bit, that reminds me of something Socrates said. He said, an unquestioned life isn't worth living, or an unexamined life. And I agree with that, like... If you're not asking questions, are you even alive? What the hell are you doing here? Yeah, I mean, to me, I guess my personal philosophy is you're here to experience. You're here to learn. And I guess part of that learning can be questioning. It can be it can be that you're passive uh, some of the time and just kind of go along with whatever's happening. But if you do that all the time, are you really living? Or are you just whatever, following somebody? A couple of other things before we get too far away from Tom Brown. Um, he had so many different uh, exercises that he would lead us to to encourage his questioning. Um, I really loved his what he called the sacred question, which is a three-part question. Um, and the sacred question is basically to look at any object, anything you want to ask questions of. And uh, the first part of the sacred question is, what happened here? And this reminds you, brings you back to the fact that we are all part of a story. Nothing exists in a vacuum. Nothing just, boop, came here out of nothing. So it invites you to question, like, you know, let's say I've got an acorn. What happened here? I know that there's an oak tree nearby. That's where an acorn comes from. So without looking up, I've got information that if I didn't ask the question, it just might not even occur to me. You know, like, I start getting information from places that my senses aren't even going just through inference. I'm looking for the story. There's a history. So looking for the, 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 the history and the story that the, whatever the, the object of your questioning is embedded in the second part of the sacred question is what is this telling me? And that's more a recognition of the spider web nature of reality. Everything is connected to everything else. So in other words, let's go back to that acorn. What is this telling me? Well, part of the, you know, what happened here? There's a oak tree. It must be old enough to produce acorns, etc. What is this telling me? There's probably blue jays around. There's probably white-tailed deer around. There's probably um, gray squirrels around. You know, it's, it's instead of looking to the past, the story, looking to the present, that everything is connected. So if you see one thing, uh, everything's connected to that. So you can, you can start educating yourself about what else must be happening Hmm. through that powerful question. Again, the the questioning, the quest. And finally, the third part is what is this teaching me? And that's an invitation that anytime you encounter something, it could change your whole world. It's an opportunity for growth. Um, you know, what is this teaching me? I might look at today acorn again. And, you know, this is just a a superficial kind of attempt to illustrate this, but uh, from small things, huge things could come. From this little acorn that I could squash in my hand, I can cover completely in my fist to conceal it. The potential is there for it to grow into an oak tree that will outlive 
me, my children, and my grandchildren. That could affect the lives of countless creatures, those wild turkeys and deer and other things I'm talking about. Um, just it could have huge implications from this one little fragile thing I'm holding in my hand. So that might be the deeper lesson that I receive from that. But the sacred question, again, it was a device to, to really spur on our questions. Mm-hmm. And now and next, <laughs> Gumby has said, like, I'm not sure about your abilities to segue. So I'm going to do a segue here. Uh, this is the middle of the segue. How do you like it so far? It's good. And now we're coming to the end. So now. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. This is the official end of the segue. Okay. The, uh, okay, so I was not going to delve into this because I don't know much about it, but the Socratic method. And that's and, never stopped us before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I do remember that, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because I'm wondering if there's anyone out there that might be around the same age as me in their 40s, early 40s, who experienced this in school. I was in high school, and there were uh, like the smart kids and the dumb kids we called. I mean, we just called I it. I experienced the dumb kids. Yeah. And I was not at this point in the smart kid class because really I just found school to be annoying at that point. This was around 11th grade and in English class. Um, one day our dumb kids class decided, like the teacher decided that she was going to introduce the smart kids class kind of method of how they were doing it just to see maybe she thought we were ready maybe she just wanted to like sit back and you know see what would happen maybe it was a social experiment and I think this is the word that they called it I think it was called paideia but keep in mind that I did not look up this word number one and number two I was going to a high school in the south so I might be mispronouncing it might be the totally wrong word but this is what it was (laughs) We arranged paideia. It sounded delicious, but there was no pie to be found. There, in this particular class, we arranged our seats in two circles. One circle was the inside circle, and one was the outside circle. And from what I remember, because I, I think we only did this once, maybe twice, and it was a, a complete and total failure as far as I was concerned. So the inner circle of kids would discuss whatever, you know, a a reading, a poem, something that had to do with English class. And I would try to sit on the outside because we didn't really have to talk that much. And the outer circle was supposed to kind of keep track of what the inner circle was talking about and maybe bring up questions as to what they were questioning or uh, clarify what the inner circle was talking about. And lo and behold, as I'm reading for this episode, The Socratic Method, in a really boring Wikipedia article, it's describing the same thing. And I show it to Gumby, and Gumby's like, well, anyway, Socrates, The Socratic Method, he didn't ever do this. Um, So that's probably one reason why it's kind of, it felt artificial and it didn't really feel like it worked. But... I was surprised to find out that they were actually trying to do this in my class. Cause and let me say, as far as I know, I'm not an expert on Socrates, so there's a chance he did something like this, but nothing I've ever ran into. And the reason why I felt like now I feel like, oh, I can see why this was a total failure. Not only because probably there were a lot of kids 
just like me that didn't really care, but also because by that point, 11th grade, 16, 17-year-old kids, it had been beaten out of us to even question. Like, we're here to take a test, hopefully guess the right answer, or bullshit enough of the vocabulary words that we were supposed to memorize. We're not here to question what we read. We're not here to analyze or, or critique what the author's saying. We just take it as fact that whatever they're saying, whatever they're giving us in school, is what we should know and we should believe. Yeah, and I can imagine a teacher hearing this, like a science teacher at a high school, saying, actually, I teach questioning. It's part of the scientific method. But those questions are so limited. Like, I'm not going to get too much into this. Uh, Listen back to our Black Magic White Science Parts 1 and 2 episodes as we contrast, you know, like, the scientific method of exploring things, Mm -hmm. which pretends to be the only method, the best method, with other ways of thinking that would produce, again, you know, who's your Martian anthropologist? Whole different line of questioning. And along with that, you know, indoctrination in school, isn't that setting us up for being indoctrinated to accept as necessity the legitimacy of government, of war, of taxes, all of this, all of this that our society is based upon? We're not meant to question it. In other words, what the powers that shouldn't be, as Etienne de la Boisy squared would say, um, we have, we were supposed to be brainwashed into not questioning any of this. Yeah, like uh, I just thought of an example. Like you might go to a science class, and the scientist says, "We're going to put on our thinking caps today, children, and uh, we're going to ask some questions here. Here's a frog uh, in front of you." And uh, I want you to ask the question, how does this frog's anatomy compare to ours? You know, like, we need to be questioners. And maybe you sit there and your first question is, who the hell killed this frog? (laughs) Where the hell did this frog come from? Yeah. What right do we have to kill a frog simply to have a bunch of kids slice it open to learn something, supposedly to learn something, that the vast majority of these kids are never going to need? Mm-hmm. Um, what would this be, uh, acceptable if it was humans that were killed for this purpose? Why is it acceptable for a frog? Who told the frog and the human, which life is more important? That's mm. a whole nother line of questions that put you in a whole different world in a relationship with it than these scientific questions that act like, you know, these are the real questions and look where that line of questioning has led us. Look around right now. That's where they've led it. Those questions have led us. Here's something juicy that you may or may not be ready to talk about, but I'm just going to bring it up. Oh, I like talking about juicy stuff, girl. Mm. Civil war in the United States. Go ahead. (laughs) Go ahead. That's for uh, Monica Perez there on Propaganda Report. Um, Let's see. Well, man, you really put me on the spot for that one. Oh, good. I'm not... (laughs) I mean, I'm trying to kind of approach it through the topic we're talking about. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot. Why don't you ask me a question? (laughs) Uh, Okay. When did you first find out that the United States never was involved in a civil war? Mm, Good question. I think that might have been through... uh, 
Carter, is his name Laren? Carter Laren? Mm-hmm. Of uh, Unsafe Space. Unsafe Space. Great podcast. Um, a lot of good information there. But he points out that a civil war, the definition of a civil war is when two different factions within one country fight for control of the entire country, which is not what happened during the uh, war that we have been taught to call the Civil War. That blew my mind. My mind is still blown, realizing that even that, that simple thing that every child gets taught about, you know, even the name, the very name of it, the Civil War, is propaganda. We've never had a Civil War in the United States of America. Um... I used to hear some Southerners call it the War of Northern Aggression. I've heard other people call it the War of Southern Independence. I thought this was sort of that, the South will rise again, sour grapes kind of stuff, like my granddaddy died because your granddaddy shot at him kind of stuff. Only now that I've learned more have I realized that they are actually using the more accurate term. It is a right of a province, of a state, of a community, if they don't feel like the wider government that they are involved in. Keep in mind what the name of our country is. The United States of America. United. We're different states, different governments, different peoples. It was never meant to be just one homogenous, blurry uh, melting pot. Mm-hmm. It was different ways of doing things that had decided we can ally together for our mutual interest. When the country goes in a direction that certain states are feeling like, I don't agree with your values anymore. I don't like where this is going. I think we're better off on our own. We understand the risks and everything, but we don't want any part of it. We're going to secede. For the country then to decide we're not going to let you. We actually want to keep control of your resources and your state and your home. You need to stay with us. That is an extremely aggressive move. <laughs> and what was the example that if you uh, if you feel like what Gumby just said doesn't make sense? What was a another example that they gave on that show? I'm not sure if they possibly they gave it on the show, but something that occurs to me now and again, I'm not sure where it came from, is if a woman and a man are in a relationship, or any two people, you know, I mean, hell, let's be progressive here. Let's say two men are in a relationship. One man is extremely abusive to the other man. Um, So the man that's being, well, let's not even say abused. Let's, Let's try to keep it as close to our analogy as possible. One man is acting in such a way that the other man feels like this relationship doesn't work anymore. We're not communicating. We don't share the same values. I want out of this relationship. So that man decides to leave. The first man says, you can't leave. You are not allowed to leave this relationship. And if you try, I will use violence on you. I will beat you. I will make you sorry that you tried to leave this relationship. We would call that blatant abuse. Now, I'm not even getting into the slavery issue because that's the thing that really gets taught and emphasized with the, the what we call the Civil War, the War of Northern Aggression. But that's a whole different uh, rabbit hole to go down <laughs> to as well because when emancipation happened, look into what states had to free their slaves and what states didn't. You might be in for a surprise. But... It's the same mindset. Oh, you want to leave? Nope. And we're actually going to hurt you if you try. That's what that war 
was more about. And again, it's kind of hard to sum up any historical thing because there's so many nuances, so many factors, so many moving parts. But that's closer to the truth than what we're taught, even with the name, which is a lie, the Civil War. So, yeah, questioning. And getting back to the Socratic method, as far as you understand it, because as far as I understand it, it's basically what we've been talking about, questioning. Is there anything else that you want to add to that in more detail or any? I just want to say, uh, you know, not so much the Socratic method, which I don't feel like I understand much about, but Socrates himself is has been a longtime hero of mine. When I was uh, in the midst of dropping out of high school, I hadn't quite, I hadn't dropped out yet. Uh, I was just kind of going there to hang out with my friends. I wasn't doing schoolwork. Um, I would sit during PE when everybody else is getting dressed out, and I just didn't want to participate in a damn thing they were doing. And I would bring a little book I got from the library that was uh, written by Plato. It was the, I don't remember the name of it, but it was, uh, you know, Socrates himself never wrote anything. Plato wrote all the things we know about Socrates. So that's what I was reading in high school, and it's because I wanted to educate myself. I didn't trust what they were trying to teach me anymore, but I didn't want to just be ignorant. I wanted to see what people had said, what was out there. So that was my introduction to Socrates. And uh, what I've always loved about him is he's not promoting much of an idea at all. He is asking questions. He is like one of the champions, one of the founding fathers of questioning in our culture. Um, And Socrates said, I'm not trying to get you to think anything. I think the wisest thing a person can say is, I don't know. So I'm trying to bring you closer to that. If I have any wisdom that another man doesn't, it's not because I know something he doesn't. Aside from this, I know that I don't know. You are still under a delusion that you know something. So I want to, through my carefully crafted questions, expose to you that you really don't know what you think you know. Hmm. And the Socratic method was a specific way that he had honed to do that. And it's really a cool way that he would do it, that he would uh, you know, ask questions like he didn't just pit himself against. It wasn't a debate exactly. He would kind of find a way to kind of get on board with the person and then through that alliance and the conversation, lead them to like, so if you believe this, you're saying this, correct? Is this true? And the person, yeah. Well, okay, if I said this, is that true? Yeah. So, you know, if we put these together, you know, you just kind of lead them that way. And uh, yeah, Socrates is a really, really cool dude. I remember on one of the uh, interviews that was on Unsafe Space podcast, they were interviewing this woman who... I guess she has some sort of company that helps other companies with, I don't remember, was it like some sort of training of employees or, or something like that? Let's just say it was a training company for, for other companies. And her employees were starting to en masse protest against the way that she was running the company, the, what they were having to train, and they were bringing in like critical yeah, race theory that was and all from that. Unsafe space. And yeah. yeah she's, she said she was dealing with uh, wokeism. Yeah. A lot of people with these, uh, this new woke philosophy that were coming into her company and saying like, well, we should do this. We should do that. And it was becoming a problem. So she actually, the owner of this company, she actually was willing to sit down with all of her employees, which is I mean, I'm not saying you should, but that's a really good move. 
um, sit down and hear their grievances and really try to open up communication. And one of the things, I'm not sure if it's a formal part of the Socratic method, but it seems like it is, she asked them, before we go any further in this discussion, let's agree upon the definitions of the words that we're using. So they, as a group, came up with what the words meant that they were using. Unfortunately, throughout, I I think, a 12-month period of ongoing meetings and what she considered to be just kind of a, a lost cause at a certain point, the folks that had originally worked together to define the words now were going back on their definitions of the words to basically prove their argument in the present. And if you've ever debated somebody in this uh, this wokeism um, on social media or whatever, you will this will sound really familiar to you. I've had so many things, definitions flip-flopped. You know, as soon as I learn what they're saying and then counter it, it's like, you know, critical race theory, for instance. Like, oh, actually, you don't even know what it is. You know, we're being told now it's a, it's a legal theory. And yet, all you have to do is scratch the surface to see how it is infiltrating school systems and teachers and being uh, taught to our, our children. You know, so if you don't approve of what this says, which is an extremely uh, racist point of view, um, they make it really hard to counter that. Even words, social justice warrior. You know, like, oh, actually, that's your word. We don't call ourselves that. Um, God, there was another one I ran into recently. Racism. Hell, even biological sex. Things like that. They'll have a certain definition, and then as soon as you try to engage to reach a mutual, like, uh, consensus or discussion, it's a tactic in this uh, wokest community to flip-flop words. I've never seen such quick flip-flopping in such a group of people that just act like they didn't see it. It's like it's like a magic trick that everybody can see. It's not even sleight of hand. But if you've already agreed that I'm going to do everything the magician says, you're just like, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. No, he did not have a dove up his sleeve. No, he didn't. That's not even a dove. Oh, did, how would you describe the dove? Was it a white dove? I'm not surprised. Uh, something else that, of course, I, I think everyone is getting sick of hearing, but I just want to explore it kind of in the 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 spirit of the Socratic method is this whole thing about the COVID um, (laughs) defense shots, whatever they're called, gene therapy, Mm -hmm. vaccines. So if you, if you are trying to decide, let's just say it's your body, you're trying to find out information about this shot. Um, you find out that the shot doesn't actually prevent you from getting whatever this thing COVID is. It doesn't even necessarily prevent you from spreading it, right? You can still be a spreader of the whatever, spike proteins or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, is it wrong to ask a question of if this so-called... Well, for one thing, here's a question I've got. How do we know that this is experimental gene therapy and not technically a vaccine and still don't mind every news channel calling it a vaccine? Right. How do we know that the United States was involved in funding weaponizing viruses at Wuhan and that 
they denied it, only to have it come out where we've all accepted now that that had something to do with it, and we still seek that government to help us and treat them as the one trustworthy source when we just caught all of us. I don't care who you voted for. They've been caught blatantly in a lie, Mm -hmm. a lie about a weapon they helped create that apparently, unless they unleashed it on us on purpose, they couldn't control. These are questions that if you ask, you're treated like you're a um, inbred dummy. Yeah, you're dismissed somehow. And if this vaccine, apparently some people are still in danger. The, all the people I know of that are getting the vaccine, they're still not only afraid, but more afraid, it seems to me, than a lot of the people who aren't getting the vaccine. If it's not protecting you, if it's not giving peace of mind, and it's not even keeping you from being a spreader, what the fuck is it for? Yeah. That's, that's a good question. I don't care yeah. who you are. That's a good question. You're not following the science, Gumby. You're not following the science. And if the science changes all the time, what does following the science mean? If you're going to act like every point <laughs> that it stops is the empirical, now we found the truth, and I'm going to insult everybody who doesn't agree with this right now. Oh. Not to mention the question, which scientist? As I saw in a Facebook post, the Coca-Cola scientists, the right. uh, tobacco industry scientists, like, or just the ones the media tells you to trust. And let's not forget the whole medical industry is making money off of us being sick, not making money off of us being well. And we just met two uh, older folks at an overlook here on the Blue Ridge Parkway just, what, two days ago now? And the one lady... As we were having our conversation, she said back in the day she was um, doing her master's thesis, and this was probably in the 60s, maybe the early 70s. She was kind of old. But she remembers from her research that out of 147 universities that offered medical programs, only 17 of those universities had any sort of information in their curriculum on nutrition, what we put in our bodies. And out of those 17 schools that offered any coursework on nutrition, it was either a one-hour nutrition uh, course or three hours of nutrition information, not an extensive study at all into what we put into our bodies that could make us healthy or sick. So what exactly are we trusting these doctors? And and when we find information from our ancestors on, you know, what works and what doesn't, why do we tend to call it sorcery? Why do we, you know, turn our noses up and say, oh, no, that's not very scientific. That's just a old wives tale or that's just some folk remedy. Yeah. And again, why are we still trusting science? I mean, point to me, point something out to me that science created that isn't causing harm in a direct or indirect way. I mean, I've posted that challenge, but again, we're getting back into black science, black magic, white science. <laughs> One uh, quote that I wanted to share, because I know we're uh, coming to the end of our time here, um, is by Richard Feynman. He's a pretty well-known physicist. And um, I love this quote he said. He said, I'd rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. 
Hmm. And, you know, going back to our Martian anthropologist, it seems to me that one thing, you know, depending, again, who is your Martian anthropologist? But I might imagine if he's coming from a culture that's got things figured out that we don't. He might come, and one of the things that impresses him is how absolutely smothered we are in so-called answers. Look at the internet. Look at our schools, our libraries, courts, um, our religions. Hell, look at our conversations between each other, our politics. We're inundated with answers. Supposedly, the internet, you've got the answer to anything. Just Google it. Google it. Google it. (laughs) Look at what that's causing Look at how well we're served by all these answers, libraries full of answers. And yet, how can you not look around and see how insecure people are, that they absolutely don't feel like they've got the answer to a goddamn important thing, even things as simple as, how do I take care of my kids? What's my responsibility to my community? Uh, How should I live as a human being? What happens when I die? Um basic, basic foundational questions we don't have the answer to. And so thinking about Richard Feynman's quote, imagine a society instead of being smothered by answers that don't seem to serve us, if there is such a thing as an answer, being smothered by questions. What a profoundly engaged society that would be. Mm-hmm. Not trying to find answers. Maybe maybe a society that has a philosophy, there's no such thing as an answer. The but great the questions, mystery. Yeah, the great mystery. The questions are still worth, worth asking. It reminds me of another Tom Brown Jr. exercise that he gave us, that uh, we were to take our little team of four or five people, go find an object. Everybody always picked a damn tree. Uh, I got so sick of picking trees. But <laughs> the exercise still worked. And brainstorm questions. Don't try to answer any of them. Hmm. You might look at a tree. How old is the tree? What kind of tree it is? Is it? What species is it? Uh, who named this tree? Um, what has this tree seen? How many winters? What's the roughest winter this tree has experienced? What What is this wood good for? Um, could I make a fire with it? A bow drill set? Is it good for making furniture? Et cetera, et cetera. Why is the bark furrowed when this tree beside of it has smooth bark? Um, endless questions. How many questions can you come up with? And when he brought us all together... He said, I'm not interested in any of your answers. What happened to your perception when you asked the questions? Mm. You could pick out that tree in the middle of a forest after doing that. That tree suddenly stood out in a blazing, neon, real way (laughs) that none of the trees had before. Through asking questions, no answers. Now, imagine a culture smothered by questions. And I'm going to wrap this up. Did you have any uh, anything else that you wanted to touch on? I mean, I know there's a lot, but... I mean, it's such a fertile ground. I also, I guess I'll just say real quick, uh, one of the things I wanted to say is uh, if you're a Martian anthropologist or an anthropologist going into any culture, one of the things an anthropologist is taught to really pay attention to is language. Language belies, betrays, uh, exhibits a lot about the culture. For instance, you go in an Eskimo culture, they got a hundred words for snow. These are people who are invested in the quality of snow for their survival. Consider our language. And I'm just going to leave it there. Mm, I like it. Um, I'm going to close this out by just bringing to attention, like if you're not still not quite sure what 
um, a Martian anthropologist might look like. Uh, Gumby was bringing up George Carlin and Jerry Seinfeld as two comedians that would often ask questions, especially about our society. And what was the one that Seinfeld you were saying the other day? I can't do it, of course, as funny as Seinfeld, but it was basically like, consider the helmet. He was saying, consider the helmet. (laughs) He said, so we're doing these activities, you know, on these machines, these motorcycles, these uh, sleds that are cracking people's heads wide open. (laughs) Oh, my God. So consistently that we feel like we need to come up with a way to stop people from cracking their heads open. So instead of uh, abandoning our head-cracking lifestyle, (laughs) we find a way to encase the head in a little protective bubble that sometimes helps. (laughs) And he was basically saying that's all you need to know to to understand humanity. I like that. And, uh, oh gosh, so I have to do the, uh, the outro here. Where is that? So we, um, in our last season, we were actually, uh, we did a two-part episode on this book, Government, the Biggest Scam in History. And Our episodes were called The Biggest Scam in History, Parts 1 and Part 2. And we felt like sending a heads up to the author, who I mentioned earlier, Etienne de la Boitsy Squared. Of course, I don't speak French, so that was probably butchered. Oui, oui. But uh, he wrote back. And we were surprised, not only that he wrote back, um, we had sent him some questions as well as the links to our podcasts on his book, um, but that he was willing to do an interview with us. So um, we told him that we were going to read his write-ins as a listener write-in on our upcoming season. So Etienne from Cottonwood, Arizona says, hi, Teresa, why don't we handle these questions on air? Which by the way, hopefully we will. Um, He said he had just started to listen to the first episode of the podcast, The Biggest Scam in History, Part 1. But I can tell you are genuinely open-minded and interested in exploring the topic. I'm tied up for the next week at Pork Fest, which was a porcupine fest for libertarian stuff, but could do a podcast interview next week with you and Gumby. Please let me know a couple of days' times. Attaching our executive summary. Best. And that porcupine fest... Um, just the way the Democrats have the donkey, the Republicans have the elephant. If you're a libertarian, or not just a libertarian, apparently, if you're someone who is uh, seeking independence, you know, well, you liberty. Want, you want people to leave you alone. Is yeah, how I leave me it. the hell alone. So their animal they've adopted is the porcupine. So pork fest isn't about eating pigs, yeah. even though I guess they probably have some barbecue up there somewhere. Maybe. Um, and it happens to be in New Hampshire. So um, I wrote to him and we were like, oh, man, you know, Etienne, we were surprised that you were so fast to respond. We're honored that you're listening to our podcast. I was born in New Hampshire. Live free or die. Yeah. Bitches. So he writes back. Um, Hi, Teresa. I'm in New Hampshire right now. Headed west. Blah, blah. He's ha- he's got all these things that he's going to. Um, then back to where he lives at in Arizona. And if there's any way to meet up along the way, then I'd be open to doing that. Uh, If it doesn't work for you, then I'm open to answering your questions via video. Oh, if you'll agree to publish them, um, if you agree to publish them out. Okay, I'm reading these out of order. So we tried to do an interview with him. Um, He also wrote, by the way, I am 99% done with both of your episodes. Best overview ever of my work and the most criticism in the best sense of the word that I have received to date. 
I would welcome the opportunity to kick these questions around with you and Gumby in a podcast. Thank you both for the time that you spent reviewing my videos, speeches, and interviews, and recognizing the importance and uniqueness of the approach. So, yeah, we're, um, we tried to do that. We actually set up... And you butchered that. You no. left, like, some of the best parts out. Oh, I'm sorry. Like, uh, uh, where was it? I don't know. Yeah. He said something about, like, oh, by the way, tell Gumby that I am not rich. I gave up <laughs> Wall Street and put my consulting business on hold to expose the organized crime system. I'm traveling the U.S. to various liberty festivals to get the book out. I'm currently living in a van with my girlfriend. Best. Yeah, so we're hoping, like, we tried to set up a room at a um, library that is not in our hometown, so I was surprised that the library would even let us do that. But the inter- the internet Wi-Fi sucked. Like, we couldn't even open up my email to respond to Etienne to tell him. And we had just come out of the woods. Like, we were drenched. It was the rainiest day since we'd been out there. So oh, yeah. It was, like, bad luck for two days in a row. We had to go to the laundromat because all of our stuff smelled like fungus and nastiness and uh sherlock's ass and gumby lost his pair of underwear in the woods or something or i lost it in the laundromat somewhere (laughs) but so we like hurried back up to the library we were like trying to get online and it's just not working and so we ended up going to a mcdonald's parking lot and i was like stubbornly trying to set up what we have right now a uh, a milk crate on top of our bedding so that we could do the podcast over my laptop but it just it just wasn't going to work out. So hopefully we'll be able to do that in the future. Um, Mm. We still have some questions about like voluntarism and, uh, and his views on like what he's trying to do and how that would affect someone that is trying to escape society like we are. And apparently we're going to have to do this over a Zoom call, which I have never done in my life. Always taken great (laughs) pride that I've never done a Zoom call. You don't want to pop your Zoom, Jerry? Well, (laughs) <laughs> I know. I know something we're talking, thinking about talking more about is transhumanism, and I feel like every time we fucking inject some kind of piece of modern technology between two human beings, we're trading for it. It's never free. There's a finite amount of uh, everything. There, conservation of energy. So every time I stick a computer between myself and somebody else, I gotta trade a little, another little piece of my humanity for it. I'm moving more towards the machine. Um, I think it might be worth it in this case. I'm willing to give it a shot because I think it'd be a really cool interview. Um, but yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's daunting. Like I was kind of like coming into that Zoom call, like man, I'm I'm, I'm worried. Like, what's a Zoom call like? What's it like instead of look look into somebody's eyes to see like a a digital image that keeps freezing up? Yeah, I I wasn't excited about doing Zoom, but I was just thinking this might be our only chance to get our questions answered in a way that feels at least a little bit like a conversation. It's kind of hard to do this. I mean, if he would have like written out the answers, we would have been happy to read them, but it it also takes out the the conversational aspect of it. And I want to say, like, thank you to Etienne. He seems like a really classy guy. We have, uh, well, I can say for myself, I've tried to contact authors before and kind of let people know, like, hey, we're doing this thing you might be interested in. Most people are just too busy, too, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's arrogance or just busyness, but Etienne, you know, like, like Teresa said, really reached out, really is trying really hard to be accessible to everybody. Yeah. Um, It's convinced me more that whether you agree with what he's doing, he really believes in it. Um, One of the questions we raised in that episode is how do we know, 
you know, a guy that studies propaganda, if we're just kind of being played. (laughs) The question still is on the table, but I'd say he's acting more and more in faith, more and more like somebody that like, I believe in what I'm doing and I'm willing to uh, be questioned because I, I I don't know. I I just have a lot more respect for the guy after his uh, interaction with us. Me too. Ditto. So as yeah. far as him being rich, like I'm looking forward to asking about the fan <laughs> setup. If it's like uh, embro- embroidered with gold or whatever. <laughs> uh, you have your own shower and. We've only got one hot tub in the back, darling. It's uh... we're, we're practically papas. <laughs> oh, so yes. So thank you for listening to our podcast today. And if you have any questions, comments. Um, we have a website, escapingsociety.webelieve.com, and there's a comment form Donate right on. Oh, there's a comment form right on the page there. There's also links to our YouTube videos, and as Gumby mentioned, there is a donate button. So if you've enjoyed any of our podcasts or YouTube videos or Facebook memes that Gumby makes on the Escaping Society Facebook page, um, we would appreciate uh, a donation. Yeah, and please review us. Um, we've only got two written reviews so far, so you bunch of slackers, like, <laughs> just take a couple minutes from, like, uh, arguing with somebody on Facebook and write us a little review. I like how our reviews all always have a caveat, like, oh, I don't always agree with everything they say, but that's good. I'm glad those people took the time. So. Hey, write us a question. Um as we're talking about questioning. Think of a question. Think of a question and start to look around you and be that Martian anthropologist that we were talking about today. So with that, I'm signing off. Bye. Bye. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it cause we'll be gone over that next horizon. We ain't got no address.